Welcome to EmergencyMedicineCases.com. I'm your host, Dr. Anton Hellman, bringing you Canada's brightest minds in emergency medicine from EMC Studios in Toronto. On this month's episode number 30, Emergency Procedures, Pearls and Pitfalls, Tips and Tricks, we have with us Dr. Jordan Schenken and Dr. Jamie Blicker. Dr. Chenkin is an emergency physician at Sunnybrook Health Sciences Centre and assistant professor at the University of Toronto. He's a master instructor with the Canadian Emergency Ultrasound Society and an instructor of the Eddy and Eddy 2 ultrasound courses. He's conducted and published original research on training for ultrasound-assisted procedures. Dr. Jamie Blicker is an emergency physician at North York General and St. Michael's Hospitals in Toronto. Completed his emergency medicine training at the University of Manitoba and practiced in Cleveland before returning to Canada. He's a recipient of multiple teaching awards and has a special interest in critical care and emergency procedures. When it comes to mastering any given procedure in emergency medicine, it requires about 50 attempts at that procedure before you can perform it rapidly, maximize the chances of success, and minimize the chance of complications. While many of us feel pretty confident about our knowledge base for emergency medicine by the time we start to practice, there are few of us who have had the opportunity to perform all the critical procedures we need to know on real patients more than 50 times. In fact, leaders in emergency medicine education have been placing an increasing emphasis on the need for improved training in emergency procedures and maintaining competency. Of course, EM cases doesn't provide you with that hands-on experience, But what we can provide for you is a mountain of tips and tricks, pearls and pitfalls about procedures, so that when you get out there and get your hands dirty doing these procedures, you'll perform them with a new confidence and decrease the chances of complications while hopefully improving the outcomes of your patients. With that in mind, we'll be discussing the nuances of some of the commonly performed procedures, as well as some procedures that are life-saving that we don't perform so often, like cricothyrotomy. We'll also give you some tips and tricks that will simply make your job easier and save you valuable time in the ED. So today we have with us Dr. Jamie Blicker and Dr. Jordan Chenkin. Welcome, Dr. Blicker. Thank you. And welcome, Dr. Chenkin. Thanks very much. All right, let's jump right into our first case. The cases in this episode are going to be pretty short and simple with a pretty obvious diagnosis so that we can concentrate on the procedures. The first case is that of a 64-year-old woman who's rushed into your resuscitation room with decreased level of awareness, a blood pressure of 75 on 40, and a temp of 38.4. Two nurses attempt to get a peripheral line but are unable to gain access. You pause for a moment to consider how best to obtain venous access. Let's just stop there in the case and talk about venous access. So you've got this patient with probably septic shock who you need to get venous access quickly. There's lots of choices when it comes to venous access. There's the basic peripheral IV, the IJ, the femoral, the infraclavicular subclavian, and the supraclavicular subclavian. Let's start our discussion of central lines with how to choose between these different techniques. Different situations are going to dictate what kind of line you're going to use. Let's start with patients who need rapid fluid resuscitation. I'd like to just throw out there first a quote. The quote goes like this. Central venous cannulation insertion is not necessary or even optimal for fluid resuscitation. A short, wide-bore peripheral IV is better. So, Dr. Chenkin, what's your take on this quote that a peripheral IV is better than a central line for fluid resuscitation? 
So I, I completely agree with that quote. I think it's a common myth that patients who need aggressive fluid resuscitation need central venous access, and that's simply not true. To understand why, you need to first remember a little bit of flow physics. And uh, this comes back to something you might remember from high school called Poiseuille's Law. And this law says that flow is actually proportional to the radius of the tube to the fourth power and inversely proportional to the length of the tube. And so what does all that mean practically? What it means is that flow will be fastest uh, through a wide and short tube. So a large bore peripheral IV is actually the ideal structure for delivering large volumes of fluid quickly. In fact, a 14-gauge angiocatheter can infuse fluid twice as fast as a triple lumen central line, which is usually 16 to 18 gauge and quite long. If you're putting in a central line for volume resuscitation, a large bore sheath introducer would be your line of choice. These are about 8.5 French and can actually infuse fluids 25% faster than a 14 gauge angiocatheter. When hooked up to a level one infuser, you can actually get flow rates up to 1500 cc's per minute. This is what we commonly use for the multi-system trauma patient that might need massive blood transfusions in a very fast manner. However, it's actually quite rare to require such a large volume that fast. And so for most patients, a large peripheral IV is, is the ideal method for delivering large volumes of fluid quickly. So in terms of a patient who comes in septic shock, for example, two peripheral IVs going full open is, is going to be a lot more effective in, in getting that patient's blood pressure up than fiddling around with the central line. Yeah, I completely agree. I mean, with the only caveat that sometimes you can predict that you're going to need central venous access for completing management. And so you can sometimes start with a peripheral IV, get things going, get antibiotics, but you can predict that there's going to be a need for vasopressor support and uh, proactively insert a central line early in the game when there's still some blood pressure. And it's often easier than, you know, later in the, uh, in the course of the resuscitation. And as just as a side note, we don't see people inserting introducer sheets or cordis catheters as much as we used to. But when I started residency, everybody who got a central line got a cordis, which was probably overkill. And if we needed to uh, have triple lumen access afterwards, we could uh, use what's called a slick introducer, which was basically a triple lumen catheter that fit through the cordis. One final note is if you're using a uh, introducer sheath for uh, pacemaker insertion, then just be aware that uh, there's a, a separate size sheath for that. So don't use the standard seven and a half or eight and a half introducer sheaths that are lying around. But you have to get a, it's a, usually a six and a half French introducer sheath. So Dr. Chen, when it comes to central lines and trying to decide between which site you want to put the central line in, what are the factors that you need to take into consideration when choosing between these different venous access techniques? So many physicians feel strongly about which site and technique is, is the best one for central venous access. And personally, I think the most important factor is your ability to get the line in without any complications. Um, the specific site and specific techniques are actually secondary issues and are probably not as important as we make them out to be uh, in our discussions. So for that reason, I think the most important factor is the clinician's experience with a specific site or technique. If you have a lot of experience with subclavians and that's your favorite line, but you've never done an IJ line, you should probably stick with the subclavian line if that's what works for you. Similarly, if you are actually most comfortable with the femoral venous access, you should use that site. A clinician's experience is the most important factor when considering complication rates from central line access. If you are comfortable with different sites, then you can consider other factors such as potential complications that arise from different sites and the contraindications relative to your patient. 
For example, if you have a patient with a coagulopathy, you should generally select a compressible site, such as the internal jugular or the femoral vein. If you have a very hypovolemic patient, you should consider using the subclavian vein, as this vein is usually tethered open and tends not to collapse as much uh, in patients with hypovolemia. If you have a patient with respiratory distress and you want to avoid the complication of a potential pneumothorax, you might want to select the femoral vein as your potential site. If you have a patient with unilateral lung pathology, for example, a pneumothorax, you should try and use that same side to put your central line in so that you don't cause bilateral iatrogenic problems. And if you have a vessel injury proximal to the site, you probably shouldn't use it. A common situation for this would be in the trauma room if you have a patient who has hemoperitoneum, you generally want to avoid using a femoral line as a lot of that fluid that you administer will end up into the peritoneal cavity. Other tips and tricks for sites, you can avoid sites uh, that have distorted anatomy. For example, patients who've had radiation therapy to the head and neck, you may want to avoid those sites. Of course, you want to avoid any overlying infection over the area. And if you are inserting a line to insert a transvenous pacemaker, you want to use either the right internal jugular or the left subclavian line, as these lead uh, in a more straight and direct path to the heart. So those are some of the considerations that I use when I'm thinking about what site to use for my central lines. Let's review here some of Dr. Chenkin's suggestions for specific sites to use for venous access in specific situations. So if you have someone who's hypovolemic, you might want to choose the subclavian vein because it's less collapsible than the others. Someone who's coagulopathic, you might want to choose a compressible site like the femoral or the IJ. In someone who's in respiratory distress, you might want to choose the femoral to avoid causing a pneumothorax. And for someone with a transvenous pacemaker, you want to choose the right IJ or the left subclavian. And remember, if patient has a vessel injury proximal to the site, you want to avoid that site. Dr. Chenkin, you had mentioned complications. Infection associated with central lines is one of the most important and most preventable complications. It carries with it pretty serious consequences. Catheter-associated infection has been associated with an increase in hospital mortality of about 25%. And central lines are also associated with thrombotic complications like air embolism, DVT. So how do the different central lines compare when it comes to infection and thrombotic complications, and how can we minimize these? So you're absolutely right. Catheter-related bloodstream infections are a real problem, and we often overlook these issues in the emergency department. We're often focused on getting in the line and quickly, and we don't usually see the results of improper sterile technique when the patient becomes septic days later in the ICU. Luckily, there are steps that we can take to reduce the risk of these complications. Most of the textbooks state that the femoral vein site is a much higher risk for developing catheter-associated infection than the internal jugular or the subclavian sites. And certainly that's what I learned when I was going through my training. Indeed, many of the initial studies comparing these sites found the femoral vein was an independent risk factor for bloodstream infection. And intuitively, you would think that placing a line in the dirty perineal area would lead to a higher infection rate. However, this dogma has recently been called into question and actually may be a myth. Uh, a recent systematic review and meta-analysis actually said that when you remove the outlier initial studies, there is no difference in infection rates between the femoral vein area and the higher lines. Supporting this argument is, that, is the fact that in the ICU, most dialysis catheters are placed in the femoral area, and these have an extremely low infection rate. So the reason for this difference may be more to do with the care of the catheter and the strict sterile technique that is used during insertion and access of these lines. 
And this may be a more of an important factor than the site itself, as newer sterile technique procedures have dramatically reduced the catheter infection rates. So the bottom line is this. Again, if you're most comfortable with the femoral vein site, use it. Just be sure to be, use proper sterile technique. There may end up being slightly higher rate of infection. However, this has not been proven definitively. The risk of the complications from using a site that you're not familiar with probably outweigh the potential infection risk. There's another issue that comes up when ED central catheters are placed as to whether they should be later removed by the ICU physician and replaced with their proper sterile technique that they use in the ICU. And this is actually the practice in many centers as they feel that our lines are, are not clean. Uh, a recent study compared the infection rates of emergency department-placed catheters, which, of which about 20% were femoral, with ICU-placed catheters, and the infection rates were actually quite similar between the two groups. So this shows that with proper sterile technique, our lines are as clean as the ones placed in the ICU. That being said, if for some reason sterile technique was not properly followed, for instance, during an emergency procedure, this should be communicated to the ICU team, uh, and they can decide whether to remove the line or replace it with another one at a later point. In terms of DVT risk, again, when I was going through my training, the femoral line was considered to be the highest risk for DVT and was another reason why we tended to avoid that site. However, a recent meta-analysis states that the femoral vein site does not appear to have a higher rate of DVT, although the studies were very heterogeneous. So again, the jury is still out as to whether the femoral line is at higher risk for infection and DVTs. So if you're interested in uh, reading more about this, um, there are two recent publications that you may uh, want to read. Uh, one is in Annals of Internal Medicine in 2012, November 20th edition, entitled Femoral and Subclavian or Internal Jugular Venous Catheters Do Not Differ for Bloodstream Infections, as well as uh, in Critical Care Medicine in 2012, August edition, entitled The Risk of Catheter-Related Bloodstream Infections with Femoral Venous Catheters as Compared to Subclavian and Internal Jugular Venous Catheters, a Systematic Review of the Literature and Meta-Analysis. And Annals of Internal Medicine, 2010, uh, volume 56, in, entitled Infection and Natural History of Emergency Department Placed Central Venous Catheters. We've talked about the importance of minimizing catheter-related infections in the ED. How can we minimize the chances of infection in the emergency department? So there's a few things we can do. First of all, if you are lucky enough to work at a site that has antibiotic impregnated catheters, um, these are considered to be the most effective Unfortunately, many emergency departments do not stock these catheters, but in the ICU, they're often used. Heparin-coated catheters are available that help to prevent, prevent uh, fibronectin binding, so this inhibits the formation of bacterial biofilms on the catheter surface, and these have been shown to significantly decrease catheter-associated infection. If you're at a site that doesn't have these catheters, probably one of the most important advances in preventing catheter-associated infections is the use of a central line bundle standard. So this was published in a, in a study in the New England Journal of Medicine in 2006, and they demonstrated a 66% decrease in line-related infections by implementing a fairly simple strategy for all lines that are inserted. The components that they included in, included simple things like hand-washing, making sure to use full sterile barrier precautions, such as large drapes, gowns, gloves, caps, and masks, um, using chlorhexidine as your skin prep, and probably most importantly is the use of um, standardized checklists and an observer that had the ability to stop the procedure at any time if uh, sterile technique was violated. 
So while this may not always be practical in an emergency setting, it should be used whenever possible. And having checklists and a vascular cart in your emergency department with all the equipment prepared ahead of time can really be helpful. Finally, I'll, I'll put another plug-in for using uh, emergency ultrasound. I think getting the line in with the first needle pass on the first attempt is probably, uh, for us, one of the biggest ways that we can reduce line-associated infections. And getting it done right the first time is easiest done with ultrasound. The wide barrier precautions has been shown time and time again in, in multiple studies to decrease infection rates. Mind you, hats and gowns haven't been shown to decrease infection rates. Not saying I'm still, I still think it's a good idea, but if you had to focus on, on one thing, the wide barrier precautions is something that we can do easily in the emergency department, whether or not you have a standardized bundle. Having the standardized bundle in the checklist is great, and what it can sometimes ensure is that if those criteria are adhered to, that the line isn't removed when the patient goes to the ICU. So that's, I think, advantageous to the patient not to have two fairly risky procedures performed. What are some of the advantages and disadvantages to each of the vascular access sites when it comes to pneumothorax, catheter malposition, and inadvertent arterial puncture? Great question. And I'll preface my answer with keep in mind, one of my mentors used to tell me, if you haven't seen the complications, it's because you haven't done enough of the procedure. That being said, what will distinguish you as an experienced clinician is how do you manage complications? How do you troubleshoot your way around the complications? And how do you deal with them? So obviously, if you do not know how to put in a chest tube, then you should not be performing a procedure that's prone to pneumothorax as a complication. If you're putting in a subclavian and you don't know how to put in a chest tube, then I think that's a mistake. But if you're not prepared to deal with the complications, then you probably shouldn't be doing the procedure. Interestingly enough, pneumothorax rates, the dogma has always been that pneumothorax rate was substantially higher for subclavian vein cannulation. And the literature varies from anywhere from 1% to as high as 20%, depending on the study. And I think, again, as, as Dr. Chenkin alluded to, a lot of that was based on experience. Now, some of the newer literature is talking about there not really being a big difference in uh, pneumothorax rate between internal jugular vein and subclavian vein cannulation. I don't know that there's a whole lot of literature on this yet, but I do think that real-time ultrasound guidance where you see the vessel and you can actually see that the lung is quite remote from the vessel and you can see how superficial the vein is and once you become good at it, you never have to put the needle in more than a centimeter or two through the skin. I can't imagine that it's going to be equivalent risk to doing a landmark technique subclavian. In terms of the literature looking at pneumothorax, malposition, and arterial puncture, probably the biggest study was from Critical Care Medicine in 2002, February, called Complications of Central Venous Catheters, Internal Jugular versus Subclavian Access, a Systematic Review. With this study, even though there were no RCTs that they reviewed, they did look at 17 prospective comparative trials with complication data on more than 2,000 jugular catheters and more than 2,000 subclavian catheters. They found that there was no difference in the incidence of pneumothorax, surprisingly. How about arterial puncture and catheter malposition? 
There were more arterial punctures with IJ compared to subclavians, but there were more malpositions with subclavians compared to IJ. Dr. Blicker is now going to give us his tips and pearls when it comes to catheter malposition and arterial puncture, keeping in mind that things have changed since 2002 with real-time ultrasound guidance for our central lines. As far as uh, catheter malposition, the right IJ approach, as Dr. Chenkin alluded to earlier, or a left subclaving approach, follow a natural curve, or in the case of the IJ, a straight line, the right IJ is a straight line down to the right atria, or in the left subclavian, a very natural curve, which is fairly easily navigated most of the time. Where I've seen problems with catheter malposition, and certainly the literature would support this, is with subclavians. And sometimes you'll see the wire going up towards the head. You can sometimes get a feel that it's not feeding properly. And what I would suggest as a little pearl, if you feel your wire is not going properly, what you can do is actually cannulate the vessel with the 18-gauge the angiocath that comes in the kit, remove your wire, change your position, and completely recannulate and start from scratch and recannulate the vessel. Particularly in the morbidly obese, when you move your hand, your non-dominant hand that's either holding the ultrasound probe or pressing on the pulse and feeling for the, the arterial pulse while you access the vein, when you move that hand, the flesh will move relative to your needle. And so if you're using just a straight needle and then you try to feed your wire, often things have moved a little bit. Whereas if you've cannulated the vessel with an angiocath, it will act as a ramp and maintain your access in the vessel. And that's something that I don't use routinely. I think it's going to be an easy central line. But if I have somebody who's extremely obese or if I'm having difficulty feeding the wire, then I will sometimes fall back on that and use it as a, a little trick. It's a great pearl. Great pearl. Okay, so you've talked about uh, pneumothorax, malposition. What about uh, arterial puncture and hemorrhage? Arterial puncture. So, you know, that's, funnily enough, not something that concerns me overly much. I'm, I think about it, of course. We used to do um, landmark-guided IJs. We were always concerned about ar- arterial puncture. And nowadays, now that I'm doing the, the majority of my central lines with real-time ultrasound guidance, it's less of a concern. It's still something that I've seen inexperienced operators can easily get into the carotid artery because once you start using ultrasound a lot, you realize how often the anatomy is variant and often the IJ is directly overlying the carotid artery. Keep in mind that you do not need to rotate the neck and you know the teaching was always to rotate the neck 45 degrees. This probably doesn't help. In fact, there's some studies showing it may even worsen your anatomy. I tend to keep people with just very slightly turned. You can do it in a neutral position. You can do it in any position you want because you're doing real-time ultrasound guidance. So really, it doesn't matter. But what you want to do is obtain favorable anatomy. And so you'd like to have the internal jugular vein lateral to the carotid artery. Or if the internal jugular vein is overlying the carotid artery, as it sometimes is, then you should be very cautious about doing a central approach or an anterior approach. What you can do in those cases is what's called a posterior approach. And it's called a posterior approach because you're going posterior to the sternocleidomastoid muscle and accessing the internal jugular vein from the side. But conceptually, you can think of it as a lateral approach. And what that does is it allows you to come in from the side of the vessel and stay parallel to the floor and above the carotid artery. And 
That's a technique that uh, I don't see used very often, but that's uh, well described in the literature. And for those cases of difficult anatomy, is definitely very helpful. And what I've seen people do is accidentally go through the internal jugular vein. And if the carotid artery is underneath it, access the carotid artery. And that's actually easier to do than it sounds. If, if the patient's hypovolemic and the IJ is easily collapsible, just the pressure of the needle will sometimes flatten out the IJ. And you can see how if the carotid is underlying it, it will be easy to accidentally puncture the carotid artery. So those are some of the things to consider when it comes to malposition and arterial puncture for jugular versus subclavian access. Now, when it comes to arterial puncture, if the patient's coagulopathic, has low platelets or a high INR, then there are some other considerations which Dr. Blicker is now going to talk about. In a patient with a coagulopathy, certainly, as Dr. Chenkin was saying, you should avoid a non-compressible site. So I have put central lines in patients with platelets of six, INRs of 4 in the same patient and, you know, temperature of 27, you know, sometimes you need to do what you need to do. The risk of, of bleeding from low platelets is actually uh, probably overblown. I think with real-time ultrasound guidance, single needle poke, if the patient needs a central line, you shouldn't be dissuaded from doing it because of that. And I think there's some support in the literature for that as well. On, on that note, some of you may recall uh, the practice of giving platelets prophylactically for patients with thrombocytopenia, and I don't think there's any uh, support for this. Probably harmful. Risks of transfusion-related acute lung injury is actually quite high in, with platelet infusion, and I don't think that's going to benefit the patient. For uh, details regarding central line insertion in deranged clotting, you could refer to Emergency Medicine Journal 2011, Volume 28, title is low levels of prothrombin time INR and platelets do not increase the risk of significant bleeding when placing central venous catheters. I've been very pleasantly surprised at how little bleeding there is with a well-placed central line with a single poke, real-time ultrasound guidance. And one other subtlety is I almost never use the scalpel when I'm putting in a central line to make a, a nick in the skin. And I started doing it that way a number of years ago for a couple of reasons. The internal jugular vein is actually very superficial a lot of the time, and it's extremely easy to accidentally poke it. When I remember what we used to do at the beginning of residency, we would stab down along the wire with the little scalpel that comes in the kit. And uh, in somebody with an elevated central venous pressure and heart failure, with a big distended IJ, and that's very superficial to the skin, it's extremely easy to accidentally just poke that. And then you end up with just a big mess. It's not that they're going to bleed to death. It's just that it's messy. I usually use the wire and the dilator. And unless they're young with exceptionally tough skin, the only caveat is that you do need to be careful to make sure that your dilator is going in line with your wire because I think it's a little bit easier to cause an accidental kink in your wire with the dilator without a nice tract already cut by your scalpel. The other thing is if a patient needs central venous access but they don't need central line is to use a long catheter. Sometimes that's technically easier because there's less steps involved, so it can be faster. So if it's just for quick access, just to put a long 18-gauge 
for example, a, a three-inch 18-gauge in the IJ is very easy. And one other thing was not to forget about the availability of the external jugular vein. Certainly that's something that, that I keep in mind in patients who are difficult to access for IV drug use or sickle cell that uh, often they have a nice external jugular vein that's relatively easily accessed. So what's the bottom line when it comes to pneumothorax, arterial puncture with hemorrhage, and malposition in terms of the different central lines? Although it's kind of counterintuitive, the literature shows that there's little, if any, difference in pneumothorax risk between IJ and subclavian. The IJ is more easily compressible than the subclavian, so is usually preferred in patients who are at risk for bleeding. With ultrasound guidance, arterial puncture with hemorrhage is less of a concern than it was in the past, even in patients who have deranged blood clotting. And you may want to consider skipping using a scalpel to make a nick in the skin, especially in patients who are coagulopathic. Or, rather than accessing the IJ with a central line, you may choose to use a 14-gauge angiocath in the IJ or external jugular for quick access and probably minimize the risk of bleeding that way. As far as malposition goes, there probably is a higher risk of malposition with subclavian lines and with IJs, but again, if you're using ultrasound guidance, this may not be as significant as it was once thought. Next, Dr. Chenkin's going to go over the basics of landmarking for the different lines. Dr. Chenkin, can you just review for us the basics of landmarking and then give us some tips on landmarking in difficult situations for the various different sites? Sure, no problem. So, before I get into that, I just want to reemphasize that blind landmarking is really rapidly becoming a lost art. There's really no longer any excuse to not be using ultrasound for every central line that you're placing, even patients who are critically ill or in cardiac arrest. There are multiple studies demonstrating that even if you've placed thousands of central lines, you can never get your complication rate below a certain level due to patient variations in anatomy. And ultrasound lets you get it right the first time and can identify anatomic variations that exists that would make the blind technique impossible and hazardous. That being said, there may be situations where ultrasound is not available, so it is important to know how to be able to landmark using the blind technique. So I'll just go through all the sites and, and give some tips and tricks for how I do it. First, for the femoral area, the mnemonic that I use is NAVAL, and this stands for from lateral to medial. First, the femoral nerve, femoral artery, the femoral vein, empty space, and lymphatics. So if you're palpating the femoral artery, uh, about a centimeter or so medial to that, you'll find the femoral vein. If you can't feel pulse, for example, in cardiac arrest or severe hypovolemia, you can use what's referred to as the V technique, where you basically place your thumb on the pubic symphysis and your index finger on the anterior superior iliac spine. And you're using your, if for the right side of the patient, you're going to use your left hand and vice versa for the opposite side. Those two fingers will form a V shape. And at the apex of the V, usually the femoral artery will, will lie right under there. So you can, again, just go one centimeter or so medial to that, and you should hit the femoral vein. Make sure to insert your needle at the level of the inguinal ligament. If you go too far above this, you can run into injuries to the bowel. And if you go too far distal to that, the vessels start to bifurcate, and the anatomic alignment may actually change. So you may, may end up hitting the artery instead of the vein. So yeah, my understanding is that the as you go distal, the artery often will come more superficial to the vein. Absolutely, and both both of the vessels start to bifurcate, so you end up with four vessels, and they can actually be in all different types of arrangements. So your your blind landmarking at distal to the inguinal ligament really is fraught with danger. 
In terms of the supraclavicular subclavian approach, I really like, before ultrasound came along, I really actually liked to use this technique. Um, it's often referred to as the pocket shot. The landmarking for this, you place the patient in a supine position, but they can actually be semi-upright for this line as well. Your point of insertion is actually one centimeter lateral to the clavicular head of the sternocleidomastoid and one centimeter posterior to the clavicle. And you're aiming towards the contralateral nipple with the needle elevated 15 degrees above the horizontal. And at this point, the subclavian vein is actually quite close to the skin. And you should enter the subclavian vein really within two to three centimeters of, of skin puncture. So it's, it's actually quite an easy line to do. It may decrease the risk of a pneumothorax and other complications. For the infraclavicular subclavian approach, in this line, your landmarking is aiming to puncture the uh, below the clavicle at the junction of the medial and middle thirds of the clavicle. The best way to do this is actually to place your finger in the sternal notch and your thumb at the junction of the middle and medial third of the clavicle. And you're going to insert your needle just lateral to your thumb at the uh, pectoral triangle. And you're aiming to have your needle to be under the clavicle at the level of where your thumb is on the clavicle. To do this, what I usually do is walk the needle just along the clavicle until you're just posterior to it. And this helps you to avoid accidentally causing a pneumothorax. And then you're aiming your needle just superior to where your index finger is. And that should end up puncturing the vessel within, again, a couple of centimeters. Make sure to have a very shallow angle of attack. If you're aiming too far posterior, you're, in, again, in danger of hitting the pleura and causing a pneumothorax. A couple of tricks for this approach. We already discussed a little bit about catheter malposition, but you can have your finger placed in the supraclavicular fossa as you're feeding your guide wire to help direct the guide wire towards the heart, as well as you can rotate the needle so that the bevel is facing caudally, again, to try and direct that guide wire down towards the heart. You can also have an assistant place some caudal traction on the ipsilateral arm, which will help to bring out the vein. And you should still use Trendelenburg, even though the vein is tethered open by the clavicle, you should still use Trendelenburg position to help prevent an air embolism when inserting this line. And it probably does increase the diameter of the vein a little bit as well. Absolutely. Okay, so you've got the finger in the faucet technique. That's a little trick. Mm-hmm. That yeah, that's help. a good little trick. You can either put your own middle finger right in the, in the supraclavicular fossa, or you can get an assistant to put their finger there, and that helps to prevent the wire from going into the IJ. Right. Right. Okay. A couple other tricks for the subclavian. If you're using ultrasound, it can be a little bit difficult with the subclavian vein, distinguishing it from the subclavian artery, because compression of the vessels is a bit tricky when they're under the clavicle. There was a paper that looked at how to get around this, and they found that by putting a distal IV in the arm on the same side and running it at a high flow rate, you would actually get some spontaneous contrast that shows up on ultrasound, which can help you to differentiate the subclavian vein from subclavian artery. So that's a trick you can use if you're using ultrasound for your subclavian access. Or just a flush with agitated saline Mm -hmm. with some air in it. That's like a cardiologist would do for a bubble test. Same concept. Mm -hmm. For blind landmarking for the internal jugular site, remember to place the patient in Trendelenburg position. And again, as Dr. Blicker mentioned, just slight head rotation is all you need. A common pitfall is over-rotating the neck, and then you end up with the vein overlying the artery. You want to identify the triangle formed by the clavicle and the sternal and clavicular heads of the sternocleidomastoid muscle. And then you want to mark and keep your finger on the carotid pulse. Normally, your internal jugular vein will lie just lateral to that, although there are significant numbers of patients where the anatomy is actually reversed. 
You're going to insert your needle at the apex of the triangle and direct your needle towards the ipsilateral nipple, about 30 degrees angulation towards the skin. You're going to remove your syringe and make sure you keep your needle hub covered with the finger at all times to prevent air embolism. Try to reduce the angle of needle insertion before you advance your guide wire so that it doesn't hit the posterior wall of the vessel. And make sure you advance your guide wire to no more than 18 centimeters. Make sure at least a quarter of the wire is in the vessel. You can estimate how much wire should be in the vessel by placing it over the chest first and also keeping an eye on the cardiac monitor watching for any ectopy. Then you're going to remove your needle. Just if you decide to make a skin incision, that would be the time to do it. Advance your catheter and remove the guide wire. A few tips for insertion of the internal jugular catheter. I often see that people are inserting the catheter all the way to the hub. Just remember that the catheters are intentionally too long for most of the sites that we use. So make sure you measure out again on the patient beforehand how deep you want to place your catheter. You want the tip of the catheter to lie in the SVC and not into the heart itself. Dr. Chenkin is now going to explain how to decide how far to go in with your IJ. Well, there are some complicated mathematical formulas to calculating how deep to place your line. A quick and easy way to do it would be to place the line on the patient's chest and measure from the sternal angle to your insertion site. And that's usually an appropriate depth. There are some old papers as well that look at just using 13 centimeters as a one-size-fits-all for all of your internal jugular lines, and that probably is a reasonable depth as well for most of your patients. At this point, if you're not really familiar with these lines, you might want to check out some YouTube videos and then go and listen to this section again just to hammer home all the tips and pearls and landmarks for these lines. A couple other tips for when you're inserting your central line. Once you put your needle through the skin, make sure to avoid sweeping your needle around looking for the vessel. These are cutting needles and a lot of complications can arise from laceration of vessels and things by moving your needle. If you're not puncturing the vessel within a few centimeters, just remove your needle completely, re-angle it and reinsert it. Make sure that you double check your guide wires actually in the vein before dilating the vessel. And this is especially important when you're putting in a sheath introducer, which punches a very large hole in the vessel. Ultrasound can be very helpful with this. I will usually replace the ultrasound probe in the longitudinal direction on the patient's neck and visualize the guide wire coursing down the internal jugular vein and making sure it's not going through the back wall or into a different vessel before actually dilating the vessel. Another tip is when you're preparing to place an internal jugular line is to prep both the internal jugular and the subclavian sites on the same side. If one site fails, you'd want to use the other site, but on the, the ipsilateral side of the patient to avoid causing bilateral complications such as bilateral pneumothoraces. Dr. Blick is now going to talk specifically about some tips and tricks for patients who are severely volume depleted in terms of getting that line in. The ones that are difficult are the ones that are volume depleted, whether it's because of septic shock and a relative volume depletion because of distributive shock, or whether it's from hypovolemia or dehydration. In those cases, you'll see the IJ under real-time ultrasound guidance, you'll see it diminish in size with respiration, sometimes even completely collapse with respiration, and then open up just for a second, collapse, open up, collapse. And so sometimes you actually have to time your insertion of your needle with the breathing. One of the things to keep in mind if they're being ventilated and they're under a lot of positive pressure, those respiral swings will actually be more dramatic and so it may actually make it more difficult. So to time it with end expiration because in, during inspiration the IJ will collapse, during expiration it will expand a little bit. 
And so the, the ones that are difficult, for the classic septic shock patient where you're having trouble getting the catheter in, that would be one where the timing will really help. In the old days, I remember they used to teach us to put towels between the patient's scapula to try and... A big waste of time. Yeah, it makes it <laughs> makes it harder. Actually, I used to. I remember doing that. We would sometimes put yeah. a little roll just in between the shoulder blades to just elevate a little bit and make the shoulders fall back. And what that probably ends up doing is actually just narrowing your your aperture to get in between the first rib and the clavicle, and end up kinking against the clavicle once you do put it in. So yeah, I don't think it's necessary. Okay. So we've talked about positioning for cannulating the neck veins. Dr. Chenkin, what about the best position for a femoral line? So generally you want the patient's hip placed in external rotation. Uh, There's several ultrasound studies looking at the anatomy and they found that just simple external rotation of the leg increases the diameter of the vein by a couple of millimeters or so and actually decreases the skin to vein distance by a couple of millimeters. And this held true across patients from all BMI groups. So if at all possible, try and place the patient's hip in external rotation. There's also an ultrasound study in pediatric patients that showed that hip rotation with 60 degrees of leg abduction actually significantly decreased the overlap between the femoral vein and artery at the level of the inguinal crease. So, of course, if you have ultrasound, you can position the leg in the optimal position looking directly at the anatomy. So specifically for that patient, what position of their leg causes the least amount of overlap and the most distance between the vessels. So we've talked about landmarking, we've talked about using the ultrasound, we've talked about tips and tricks of trying to hit that vein. Now let's say we're on to the point where we're getting that wire in. We often end up with the wire getting stuck or it's not threading nicely or the introducer gets stuck. What tips and tricks can you give us about when you get a guide wire or introducer that's getting stuck? So this can be often the most frustrating part about insertion of a central line. You get your beautiful flashback. You're advancing your wire and it goes a centimeter or two and and it gets stuck. And there are some simple things you can try to do to troubleshoot this problem. If you're having trouble with the guide wire not feeding, most commonly the problem is that the needle is up against the posterior wall of the vessel. So what you can do is try pulling the needle back slightly and drop the angle and then re-advance the guide wire. Um, If that's not working, you can try rotating the wire as you advance it. And that will usually allow it to feed in past the posterior wall. If you're still having trouble, you can use your ultrasound. Again, put the ultrasound probe back on the neck and have a look. Is the guide wire hitting the back wall of the vessel? Is it getting kinked somewhere? You can try and see where it's getting held up. Sometimes you'll actually see it's going right through the posterior wall of the vessel. And of course, that's where you know your answer and you need to pull the whole thing out. The other problem people run into is often they get flashback in the syringe and then while they're detaching the syringe from the needle, the needle moves somewhere, either too far back or it comes out. So a lot of the kits now actually have syringes where you can pass the guide wire through the syringe. So if you do have a kit that allows that, try just passing the guide wire directly through the syringe and that prevents the needle from moving as you're doing it. The other place that the guide wire might get held up is when you get to vessel branches or if you're torturous vessels. So sometimes slight rotation of the wire can help or you can actually turn the whole wire around and use the straight end of the wire instead of the J-tip if you have a patient with lots of torturous vessels. Other tricks you can use would be to try and increase the amount of Trendelenburg the patient's in to try and dilate the vessels and try rotating the head to different positions, either straight or even to the ipsilateral side while you're feeding the guide wire. We already mentioned the finger in the fossa technique, but I'll just remind everyone about that. So if you're using a subclavian line, uh, placing your hand to apply pressure in the supraclavicular fossa 
can help to direct the guide wire down towards the heart. Uh, so those are some tricks for guide wire issues. The other problem people run into is you get the guide wire in and then you're having trouble feeding the actual central catheter over the guide wire. If you're using especially a large line like a sheath introducer, if there's not a large enough hole in the skin, this can cause problems. And you're going to end up generally kinking the guide wire if you bend it at all. So make sure if you're using a large catheter, make sure you give a generous uh, skin incision for those large catheters. If you don't, uh, sometimes you can. I get actually a bit of adipose tissue that gets stuck between the wire and the catheter. And this can make advancing or removing the guide wire almost impossible. Just to clarify, before I was saying how I do a scapulous uh, central line insertion, but that's with the triple lumen catheters. Definitely with the introducer sheets, they're large enough that really it helps to, to make a nick. You can, with fussing, sometimes do it with nothing, but you're, it's so, you're so much more likely to end up with a problem with kinking that I think it's worthwhile just to make a nick for those. And when you're using a sheath introducer, make sure you hold them together where the catheter and the dilator connect. If you feed the, the catheter over the dilator uh, before the tissues have all been dilated properly, the catheter has very friable ends to it, and it can kink and then not be able to penetrate into the vessel. And then finally, uh, one of the other problems people have is getting the guide wire out successfully. So very frustrating. You've got your line in now. You're all ready to aspirate your line, but you can't get the guide wire out through it. And this is most likely caused by a kink in the guide wire. And it can be very dangerous if you try to forcefully pull on the guide wire. So it's really important to never, ever put any significant pressure on the guide wire. You can actually shear off parts of it and have it embolize, which is never a good thing. So if you're running into problems where the guide wire is just not coming back out, your safest bet is just to pull everything out as one piece, the guide wire and the needle or the guide wire and the line, and just start over. Let's just back up a little bit and talk about how to confirm that you're in the vein rather than the artery. You know, we all know that usually bright and pulsatile blood is artery and that dark and non-pulsatile is vein, but sometimes it's a bit hard to tell, especially, right. especially if the patient is really hypotensive or if they're on 100% O2. What are some of the other ways if it's, you know, I've been in situations where you go in and it's a little bit pulsatile yeah. and it's, you know, kind of dark, but it's, you're not really sure. That's what, right. These are not, you know, healthy patients typically, right? I mean, it's one thing if you take a 20 year old healthy person and you cannulate the carotid artery and it's going to squirt and spray the ceiling in somebody with a blood pressure of 50 may or may not be that obvious. And if they're on hundred percent oxygen and the venous blood may actually appear quite bright. And then mm -hmm. again, you can be in the subclavian vein and there can be some pulsatility to it because it's right adjacent to the subclavian artery. So I've actually seen that once where it was clearly pulsatile and I was like, I don't know, I'm pretty sure we're in it's pulsatile. And I was like, well, let's just wait and see. So we just sent it off for a blood gas and compared it to an arterial sample and, you know, it turned out it was venous. So the pressure transducer, which you mentioned, uh, we could connect to a transducer and see if we get an arterial waveform, but that can actually even be misleading. And in, in, in this case, it would have been somewhat misleading because it was clearly a pulsatile waveform. Keep in mind that you have time. If you've already dilated and put in the catheter, then just wait. People think that 
it's a catastrophe if cannulated and put a catheter into the artery, but it's really not the end of the world. I would, in fact, I would probably just park it, put it aside, wouldn't even remove it initially if I was acutely resuscitating the patient, and I would just move on to another approach and deal with that later. But certainly the pressure transducer, the blood gas, Jordan mentioned about just looking for the wire. So put a wire through again if you're not sure. Put the wire through your catheter. Take a look with the ultrasound. You can clamp the wire at the level of the skin and, and shoot an x-ray and see if the wire is actually going down into the heart. That's another trick yeah, you can use. that's good. More, probably more time-consuming than just right. putting the ultrasound on, but for sure, works great. You made a good point yeah. that, I mean, if you, if you accidentally dilate an artery, it isn't the end of the world, but you want to definitely make sure that, especially if you put a, a cordis in it or something, mm-hmm. don't pull it out. Yeah, or um, a vas cat. Exactly. <laughs> you, I mean, you need to contact, yeah. uh, you need to swallow your pride and contact vascular surgery because those generally need a, yeah. a, a surgeon to repair them. You could compound your error by just pulling it out and now you've That's got right. a big And then it's harder for them to find it exactly. to, to do the repair. Right? And when, if you leave the catheter in, it's easier for them to find where the injury is. So a couple of ways of confirming that you're in the vein rather than the artery, besides just looking for dark red and pulsatile blood, is to connect it to a pressure transducer or send it for a blood gas analysis or reinsert your wire and confirm your placement with ultrasound or with x-ray. And remember that if you do have your line end up in the artery, do not remove it. Instead, leave it there and call vascular surgery for help. Next, we're going to talk about how to prevent the dreaded air embolism. One of the complications that luckily, as far as I know, I've never caused is, a, is an air embolism. That's one of the nastier ones. How can we prevent the dreaded complication of an air embolism? So luckily, it's, it's pretty rare to ca- cause an air embolism, but there are some important things you can do to help prevent that, some basic techniques. So just make sure that once you've got your catheter in or your needle in, um, make sure that you use your thumb or your finger to occlude the hub of the catheter at all times so that no air can enter. Make sure that the patient's in the Trendelenburg position, even using the subclavian approach. This will help prevent air from traveling to the lungs. And make sure if, you, if the patient's awake during the procedure, you can ask them to exhale during the insertion of the catheter. Again, this will help to increase the intrathoracic pressure and prevent air from entering into the circulation. And then one thing that's sometimes forgotten is once you've gotten your line in, all your ports will be full of air. So before you start flushing your ports, make sure you aspirate all the air out. Make sure you're getting blood back all the way to the hub of the, the catheter before you actually flush them. Because even that small amount of air that's lying in, those, in, in the hubs of the catheter can be quite significant when it's delivered right to the central circulation. So if you do have a, the dreaded air embolism uh, complication, one thing to remember is proper patient positioning. If you recognize that there's been an air embolism, which would probably present as just sudden circulatory collapse while you're putting in the central line, keep in mind it could also be that you've caused a tension pneumothorax, so you'll need to deal with that. But you could consider putting the patient in the left lateral decubitus to uh, prevent a kind of air block. The other thing to consider is uh, aspiration with a pulmonary artery catheter, which is long enough to get into the heart and uh, aspirate air. Dr. Blicker is now going to make some comments about the importance of internal consistency when it comes to procedures in general. What I think is most important, and I always tell people, is it doesn't matter how you do something, it's that you're internally consistent. And the reason for that is 
you want something to become second nature to you so that there's no cognitive load. You don't want to be thinking about things while you're doing physical procedures. It's a muscle memory and it should be just automatic. And so you don't want to have to think too hard while you're doing stuff. You want to have done the thinking beforehand. So I do my central lines basically the same way every time. You know, there's some variations. And if you have to troubleshoot little complications, but in terms of the setup and the order that I do things, I just do it a certain way every time. And that way I know it's predictable. And if I get off track or distracted by something, I can go right back to whatever step I was at. And I think that's important. So that's all we're going to talk about central lines for now. Next, we're going to go on to case number two. All right, so we've talked about central lines. Let's move on to our second case. Our second case is that of a four-year-old boy who comes rushed into the resuscitation room seizing. The patient's been seizing for 20 minutes continuously. The nurses try to put an IV in, but they're having a hard time. He's received IM midazolam, but he still continues to seize. He's starting to appear cyanotic despite a non-rebreather. So Dr. Blicker, at this point, what would you reach for in this patient in order to gain access? Well, of course, at first I would deal with his airway issues, <laughs> but assuming that uh, that was under control, one option to keep in mind before even proceeding to, to vascular access is uh, intranasal midazolam. Assuming we've, just, we've dealt with that and we want to obtain access, I would go immediately to an intraosseous needle. I, I think it's a real game changer, actually, in terms of taking away the stress of obtaining vascular access. When you're dealing with a difficult case, you don't want to spend time thinking about vascular access. You just want it done and you want to be able to move forward with looking after the patient. And so the IO takes 20 seconds and you're done. And I'm a big fan of the easy IO. Okay, so let's talk a little bit more, a little bit more about the IO. You talked about the easy IO. There's the IOs that came out originally before the easy IO are, are the manual ones. And yeah. there's, there's a couple other ones that they use. Yeah, the there's one called the BIG, which is a bone injection gun, which is a spring-loaded intraosseous needle. It can be used in adults or pediatrics. I've actually demoed a few of the different uh, kits, and I, I think the easy IO is by far the uh, easiest to use. And actually translates very well to general use, because if anybody's ever used a drill or automatic screwdriver before, it's a very similar kind of feel. So in this patient, I agree, a, a child who's seizing and you're having difficulty getting a line on, this is the perfect kind of patient to try an IO on. Uh, Dr. Chenkin, which other patients should we be considering an IO and why? Well, I think the list is growing and growing, and, and I'm certainly using it uh, much more liberally on, on patients in the emergency department. You can consider an intraosseous line basically in any patient of any age where IV access can't be readily obtained and the patient is sick. And the classic cases that we, situations we've discussed, things like burns, trauma, shock, dehydration, cardiac arrest, uh, those were sort of the initial situations where intraosseous made its mark. But increasingly, we're realizing this is really quite a benign intervention for patients and it can be life-saving. IV access can be quite challenging in, in many patients, especially when they're peripherally shut down and they're sick. And if people have tried a couple of attempts, it's unlikely that any further attempts are going are, are to be successful. So that's the time where I would pick up the IO and, and insert it. ACLS PALS, ATLS, they all recommend intraosseous access now for patients where peripheral IVs are not immediately available. 
it's really fast, it's reliable, it's easy to perform. There's a study that showed the average insertion time for an easy IO was 4.5 seconds. And they had successful placement in 97% of patients. So really, this is something that's, you know, as soon as you're, you've got all your equipment ready, you're going to have access right away. And then you can just move on to continuing resuscitation of the patient. You don't have to worry so much about how am I going to get access on this patient. In the rare case of a pediatric cardiac arrest, the last one I saw mm-hmm. was about three years ago. We just started putting in yeah. bilateral IOs yeah, right exactly. off the bat. Mm-hmm. I don't even waste my time trying for the IV. I just proceed immediately to the IO. Mm-hmm. It's equivalent to a central line in terms of the rate of drugs reaching the central circulation. And you know that it's going to work rather than, you know, the nurse might be able to get an IV. You know you're going to get an IO. Mm-hmm. So why, uh, why waste time? Sure. So let's talk a little bit more specifically about how easy they are to learn and, and in terms of complication rates compared to a central line or peripheral line. Sure. So there's no question that intraosseous is much easier to learn than a central line. Less experience is required as there's fewer steps involved. And there's much less danger of causing complications during the insertion. It's really a procedure that can be learned in about five minutes on a simulated bone. And it's, it's really likely on par with a C1, do one, teach one. After practicing one to two times, you're ready to go. In terms of effectiveness, an IO I generally think of as a temporizing device. It buys you time during resuscitation to administer fluids, administer drugs, and blood if needed while you're preparing to get a more definitive vascular access route. So you can use the intraosseous to stabilize the patient. And then when you have more time, when the patient's stable, you can work on something more definitive, such as a central line. In addition, once some volume resuscitation occurs, often an IV site pops up that wasn't visible prior to the intraosseous being inserted. So that being said, an intraosseous site can be used for administering any fluids or drugs that can be given IV. You can draw blood from an IO site to send for for blood tests. You can administer fluids at a rate about equivalent to a peripheral IV, about 42 cc's per minute. In addition, in a cardiac arrest, uh, intraosseous access uh, provides sodium bicarb with a greater buffering capacity than if you were to give it uh, via peripheral IV. All right, so these are really quick, they're really easy, and the success rate is really high in the high 90s. When it does fail, what are the main causes of failure of the IO? Causes of failure would be you know, errors in landmark identification. So you're going to see that more in the bariatric patients, the morbidly obese Bending the needle, which is hard to do, but you can't, it can happen. Putting too much pressure on the IO needle and following through too much when you insert it so that you go through the posterior cortex of the bone. And one way to avoid doing that is just to use your finger on, on the needle as a, a kind of a register, a depth register. So what I do is I puncture com- with the needle without depressing the trigger of the easy IO. I puncture completely through the skin right down to the bone before I press the trigger. And the reason I do that is if you press the trigger as you're entering the skin, you tend to start to catch the skin and bind and it starts to twist a little bit. So puncture right through to the bone. And then just to use your finger as a depth register about a centimeter from the, the bevel and then press the trigger. It really does the work. You don't have to press very hard. That's why, where the bending of the needle happens. I think people try to force it. It's, it's functioning like a drill. And if you've used a drill, you know that you really let the drill do the work. You have just slow, steady pressure. You'll feel your sudden release of of pressure, and then you'll know you're in the uh, cavity, and then stop. Okay, so it's only about a centimeter below the skin that you're you're right. I mean, if it's if it's a thin patient, I mean, like on myself, for example, 
I have, you know, a couple of millimeters of skin and the tibia is right there. So it's not much deeper to get into the uh, marrow cavity. You'll also feel that you're in the right spot because it'll feel firmly anchored. I mean, you don't want to wiggle it too much because you don't want to loosen things, but it'll feel solid. I mean, if you put a screw into wood and you, you know how solid that feels, it's a similar kind of feel. Mm-hmm. Okay. And what medications can or cannot be given through the IO? You can really give anything through the IO. I mean, the only thing that I would be aware of, and this applies as well to peripheral IVs, is if you're administering ceftriaxone, you shouldn't give calcium immediately afterwards, particularly in infants, there's a risk of precipitation of calcium salts. So I would say if somebody needs antibiotics and you're planning on giving ceftriaxone, uh, you could give cefotaxime instead, or you could just be aware that you've given ceftriaxone and know not to give, you know, follow it immediately with a chaser of calcium. But other than that, there's no real concerns. Any blood product, any vasopressor, anything that you give centrally or peripherally can be given through an IO. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's even reports in the literature that lytics have been given for yeah, STEMI sure. through an IO. Yeah, anything. You can even give no. CT contrast through an yeah. IO. She might be thinking that putting a drill through your patient's skin and bone cortex must be really painful. But in fact... It's not so painful. Studies measuring pain on a visual analog scale have shown similar scores between I.O. and placing a peripheral IV and a central IV. Despite this, if you are worried about the pain of insertion of an I.O., you can inject a little bit of lidocaine into the skin before you go in with the I.O. What about the pain of infusion? Now, this pain can be significant, and it can be significantly reduced by injecting 0.5 milligrams per kilogram of preservative-free lidocaine through the I.O. before starting your infusion. Next, we're going to talk about how best to landmark for the I.O. Let's talk a little bit more specifically about landmarking. You had mentioned that one of the common errors for failure of I.O. is improper landmarking. So can you just run through for us what the common sites are and how to landmark them? Yeah, In children, the preferred site is the proximal tibia. Uh, you can actually also do distal femur. You could do the proximal humerus. But I think the the easiest thing is probably just to do proximal tibia. And if you just palpate the tibial tuberosity and just go a little bit medial and uh, two fingers below that, you'll be fine. And actually, there's quite a bit of latitude. It's a fairly large area where if you get the needle in, you're going to be in the right spot. I think it's actually a difficult procedure to mess up with compared to a lot of the other things we do. Okay. And in, so in kids, it's the preferred site is a proximal tibia. How about in adults? In adults, again, you know, they talk about uh, using distal femur, proximal tibia, proximal humerus. I've used them all. I think the easiest in terms of physical location for resuscitation is probably the uh, proximal tibia. And then you had mentioned the sternum. Uh, that's not for use with the EZIO. There's an, a separate kit that was designed in the military, which uses multiple needles, which was developed for sternal I.O. And there was a, one case in the literature of somebody using a regular I.O. in the sternum and causing a cardiac tamponade. So I wouldn't advise using the sternum with any of the tools that we have available to us in emergency. So we've talked about the landmarks for I.O. Can you just review for us uh, the size we should be using for different patients? Sure. It's, it's actually very straightforward. If, we, if you are using the easy I.O. kit, there's three different size needles and they're color coded. And the pink one is for infants. The blue one is for adults, and then the yellow is a longer needle, which can be used for bariatric patients or for the uh, access of the proximal humerus in a normal patient. Okay, so Um, pink for kids under about 40 kilograms, 
blue one is for adults and kids that are more than 40 kilograms. And yellow and, is for, it's just a longer needle. Okay, for like a massively obese patient. Yeah, or somebody with a muscular arm that you want to do a proximal humerus on. Or... All right. Okay. And Dr. Chenkin, are there any contraindications to IO? There are some uncommon but important contraindications to remember. It's important to remember that intraosseous lines don't flow very well under gravity, so they often require a pump or a pressure bag to get a reasonable flow rate. So because of this, any other holes in the bone will potentially leak the fluid back out, and in a bad situation, that can actually result in a compartment syndrome. So it's important to remember to avoid placing intraosseous lines in bones with fractures, or if you've previously attempted an intraosseous site in the same bone, that fluid is just going to leak out through the hole that you've placed. Some other things to remember, avoid placing an intraosseous line in a bone with previous surgery at the same site, for example, a knee replacement, as the orthopedic hardware may actually impede the proper placement of the line. Um, avoid intraosseous lines in patients at high risk for iatrogenic fractures, such as osteogenesis imperfecta and osteoporosis. And then finally, obviously, we're going to not place an IO line through any kind of soft tissue infection, such as cellulitis. Okay, and once you get the IO in... What do you need to do to confirm the proper placement, get the meds in, and ensure that it's functioning properly? So the first thing you want to do is make sure you're aspirating marrow back, and this will confirm that you're in the right spot. As Dr. Blicker mentioned, you, you want to make sure the needle seems to be firmly seated, and it should sit upright without any support. fairly new technique is using ultrasound to confirm needle placement. So in resuscitation 2009, used a small sample of pediatric patients, and they showed that ultrasound is 100% accurate for detecting correct and incorrect placement. And so it can be very good for verifying placement after transport of patients as well, where the needle might have shifted. They recommend uh, the optimal approach seems to be using the transverse orientation and using color or power Doppler to look for signal within the marrow cavity when you're uh, using a flush once you've got the, uh, the needle in the right spot and you've confirmed your placement, the next thing you want to do is flush the catheter with normal saline. And you need to use a fairly large volume, about 20 cc's. And what I'll usually do is add a bit of lidocaine to that mix because this first initial flush, if the patient's awake, um, this is probably the most painful part of the entire procedure. Um, the actual insertion of the needle is not all that painful. In fact, most patients are not really aware of it if they have other problems going on. But when you start flushing the uh, marrow cavity, it can be very painful. So adding a bit of lidocaine can really help with that. The flush should go in very easily. If it's not, if you're getting much resistance, just again, check your position of your needle. And again, anytime the line stops flowing easily, just repeat the flush first. Sometimes it can get clogged off and just a flush can help to restore the patency of the, the needle. Another trick is to make sure not to connect the IV tubing directly to the needle itself, but to use the extension tubing that's, that comes with it. It usually comes with a 90-degree bend on it. And what this does is it helps to avoid any um, accidental movement of the needle. Anytime you, you pull on the needle or move it around, it can actually widen the hole in the cortex. And again, you can get fluid extravasating through that hole and causing tissue edema and, and potentially compartment syndrome. And finally, every once in a while when you're infusing under pressure, just make sure that fluid is not going interstitial. Usually what I'll do is palpate posterior to the, the tibia, just to make sure that you're not causing uh, fluid to go right through the back cortex and, again, causing potentially a compartment syndrome. So you want to make sure those, those compartments remain nice and soft. Every 10 to 15 minutes or so during the first hour that I'm infusing, I'll, I'll go back and just repalpate posterior to the tibia and make sure there's no signs of any extravasation of fluid. Okay. And I think it'll be pretty obvious if it happens, especially if you're using vasopressors. I've seen that once, and it's fairly dramatic. Once we've got access with our IO, uh, you had mentioned that it 
stays very stable all on its own, uh, let's say we want to transport the patient. How do we secure the I.O. to make sure that it's not going to move? So there is a proprietary uh, device that comes with the EZIO needles, which is basically a uh, plastic hub with a built-in adhesive, uh, which fixes the needle very nicely. And if you have that, that's great. I would use it. It's not necessary. You can use just a bolster of gauze and an offsite over it. You could use a plastic cup, the bottom taped out like they do for pediatric IVs. What you're trying to do is just prevent accidental dislodgement of the needle by having somebody bump into it. Let's say you're really having trouble getting venous access. You can't get any blood from the patient. What blood work can you get from the IO that you can kind of hang your hat on? So the, the literature on this is a bit mixed. Uh, there was one study actually looking at volunteers. I'm not sure who volunteered for an intraosseous line, but they compared blood samples from a, an IV and an IO. And they, and they found that the intraosseous sample was generally fairly reliable for hemoglobin, sodium, chloride, and glucose, and creatinine. So those are some important uh, blood markers that we, we often want to check in a resuscitation. Just be cautious. Um, there was some poor correlation when you were looking at the white blood cell count, which probably isn't that, that important for us in the acute phase, the platelet count, potassium, and the CO2 level. So just be aware that sometimes those have a, a poor correlation. In a bleeding patient, though, you can use the blood for a cross-match from an IO mm-hmm. sample. So that's, that's really important in a resuscitation. Interestingly, the authors found that if you discard the first two cc's of blood from the sample, the correlation was much more accurate. Mm-hmm. So that's a tip that you can use is to actually draw out a syringe full of blood, discard that before you start sending blood to the lab. Mm-hmm. And in fact, because they're so dependent on flow, often when you put in the EZIO and you aspirate, you don't always get blood back. But then if you do your, your generous flush with 20 cc's of normal saline, and then aspirate, you'll get you'll get blood back readily. So then, in a case like that, I would waste five cc's and then get your draw for the lab. So, in terms of which blood work is reliable when drawn from an IO site, hemoglobin, sodium, chloride, glucose, creatinine, as well as cross matching, are all reliable when drawn from an IO site. What's not reliable is CO two or potassium. And don't forget to discard the first few cc's of blood before filling your tubes for blood serum analysis. Initially, when they came out with IOs, they did not recommend using IOs for neonates, for little babies. My understanding is that things have changed a bit and people are starting to use it more and more. Do you recommend using IO for access in For in sure, absolutely. And again, it's, it's doing what you're comfortable with. I mean, we keep coming back to this. And I think for... For us as experienced clinicians, we recognize that it's good to stick with what you know. And I mean, I've done one umbilical vein catheterization in med school, and I've done, I'm up over 100 IOs now for sure since since it came out. And uh, so what would I rather do? Of course, I'd rather do an IO. And Dr. Blicker's experience is borne out in the literature. One study showed that clinicians who don't frequently perform neonatal resuscitation find that IO placement was easier and quicker to perform than umbilical venous catheterization. One of my favorite okay. tools. My it's last question, do you have stocks in easy IO, Dr. <laughs> Blicker? No, no, but I, I'm a, a huge fan. And kidding aside, just to be clear, 
Neither Dr. Blicker nor Dr. Chenkin nor myself have any financial ties to any product for any of the procedures that we talk about in this episode. Let's move on to case number three. Case number three is that of a 25-year-old obese man who's rushed into your resuscitation room by EMS in severe respiratory distress. He was attempting to break into a stranger's apartment when he got into an altercation with the owner of the apartment and sustained a direct blow from a baseball bat to the lower face. The neighbor called 911. EMS reports that they were unable to intubate the patient using laryngoscope due to the distortion of landmarks from the injury. They tried a bougie, but again failed. On exam, he appeared to be in severe respiratory distress with copious bleeding from a severely deformed mouth. His vital signs were a heart rate of 110, blood pressure of 160 on 100, and O2 sat of 83% on an ill-fitting facial mask. Respiratory rate was difficult to assess as the patient was choking on his blood. Two suction catheters were placed in his mouth, and on closer inspection, most of his teeth were missing, his mandible and nasal bones were crushed, and his pharynx could barely be identified due to copious bleeding and deformed anatomy. You call for the glidoscope, but there's too much blood and distortion of anatomy to get anywhere with it. You try a blind bougie, but it ends up in the esophagus. You recall that your can't-intubate-can't-ventilate algorithm suggests maximum head extension, maximum jaw thrust, assistance with a mask seal, nasal airway, but none of which you're able to perform in this patient because of distorted anatomy and C-spine precautions. At this point, the patient's O2 sat has dropped to 77%. You ask the nurse to put in a stat call for the anesthetist. You contemplate an LMA, but again, the anatomy looks like a dog's breakfast. You put the oxygen mask back on the patient, and you call for a cricothyrotomy kit. So let's stop here and talk about surgical airways. About 1% of ED intubations are surgical airways, most of which are in the setting of major trauma. Although these surgical airway techniques are rarely performed, it's important for ED docs to be skilled and knowledgeable about the options for surgical airways so that when you are confronted with a can't-intubate, can't-ventilate situation, you're able to rapidly secure the airway and save a life. There's generally three accepted ways of doing a surgical crike. Let's start with the traditional open technique. Um, Dr. Blicker, can you run through for us the traditional basic procedure with some of the pearls and pitfalls, and then we can talk about some of the alternatives? Sure. Let me just start by, by saying the most difficult part of the procedure is conceptual, and that's to be able to cross that mental barrier, recognizing that it's necessary and doing it. And the errors I've seen made have all been errors in judgment in terms of the timing of uh, when to perform the crike. And people tend to wait too late. And that's because there's a mental block because it's a very invasive procedure that's not frequently done. And people have a hard time moving forward in the next step of the algorithm. So I think the most important thing is to visualize beforehand. I just And I've done this at home as a, just as a visualization technique that all athletes do, which is to visualize yourself actually physically doing something that you've never done as a way of getting to that next step. Think of a scenario that this might become necessary and just walk yourself through it mentally. And that takes away some of the mental barriers. And in a case like this, there's clearly not time to wait for anesthesia. And in fact, this is a case where I might have proceeded straight to surgical airway from the immediate presentation. And I do prefer an open technique myself, again, just because of familiarity. 
And the most important thing is once you've made the decision to do it, just to do it. And it's, it's not going to be pretty. Surgeons, I've seen sometimes struggling with that because they're used to a nice bloodless field in the operating room under controlled circumstances. Forget about that. Think of it as a blind procedure. If you can see what you're doing, that's great. But my experience is that it's often quite messy and you may not get a great view of what you're doing and you just have to do it by feel. So that being said, landmark, you feel for the cricothyroid membrane between the Adam's apple and the cricoid cartilage. You may or may not feel it. In a thin person, you can feel it as a slightly V-shaped notch. And you're going to palpate that and you're going to stabilize the larynx. If you're right-handed, it's best if you're on the patient's right and you can, then you can stabilize the larynx with the non-dominant hand. You can also just landmark above the sternal notch, just four, four finger breaths above the sternal notch, and that'll bring you in the region of the cricothyroid membrane. Probably brings you a little lower than you need to be, so just be careful. If there's a open cricothyroidomy kit available to you, that's great. It's not necessary. You can do it with a minimum of tools. I, I prefer to keep things simple. I, I do like the Trousseau dilator. If you have it in an open cry kit, that's great, but uh, it's not essential. So you'll stabilize the larynx with your non-dominant hand. Some people you use a finder needle as a way of localizing the airway. I don't actually think that's necessary. I think it adds an extra step. But again, whatever you feel comfortable with. As a vertical incision, don't be afraid to make a generous incision. Sometimes people will try to do uh, procedures such as surgical airway or chest tubes through a small hole. And, you know, if you've done it a thousand times, you have time and you want to do it through a keyhole, that's great. But in a case like this, where it's really a crash airway, make a generous incision and then uh, don't worry if there's bleeding. Try to respect the midline so that you're away from vascular structures. Using a number, number 11 blade, you take from the, an incision from the bottom of the cricoid right to the thyroid. And if you make a too large an incision, don't worry about it. Your, your focus is obtaining an airway. If you made a bit of a mess getting in there, if you secured the airway, everybody's going to be happy. Everything else can be fixed down the road. Once you've made your vertical incision, if you have skin hooks or retractors, you can get an assistant to do that for you. If you don't, it doesn't really matter. You can just make do with whatever tools are available to you. You can use a towel clip. You can use whatever. You can use a forceps. You can use nothing. Really just feel for your cricothyroid membrane and then make, at that point, a horizontal incision or a transverse incision through the inferior aspect of the cricothyroid membrane, trying to avoid the arteries that run through the superior part of the membrane. Again, try to respect the midline because as you start getting off to the side, you start running close to the uh, carotid artery, internal jugular vein, etc. So that brings up the importance of stabilizing yes, the larynx. Yes, this is why we stabilize hand. the larynx. It's very easy to see. Yeah. It's a very mobile structure, right? So it's very easy to, uh, for, to, to get off track. Right. And um, you, you just want to use a one centimeter incision when you're actually yes, going through so the Yes. So going through the cricothyroid membrane, again, try to make a one centimeter incision. You know, if you're hasty and you make too large an incision, at the end of the day, that's going to be a repairable injury. So get the tube in the hole is the, the end of the day, the most important thing. Now, I've grabbed the superior aspect of the cartilage and pulled it cephalad. And that's just opening things up a little bit. That's with my non-dominant hand. My left hand is holding the uh, skin hook to maintain the airway. You don't want to lose that, that access to the airway. So your skin hook or finger 
or a bougie or whatever it is, is what's maintaining your access to the airway. So then assuming we're doing the skin hook and we want to use the trousseau dilator, then I can put the trousseau dilator in with the handle oriented cephalad and then rotate it down so that the handle is facing you. And then you can dilate, put your tube in, and you know, then you can obviously once you're once you've opened the dilator, you don't need the skin hook anymore, and then you're golden. You can use the trousseau dilator. You can use there's a, some great videos on YouTube which I would encourage people to look at that uh, use a bougie to assist cannulation of the trachea. And actually, that's a great technique because it allows us to fall back on something that we're familiar with. So, you know, people using cellular technique for chest tubes is another example of using a familiar technique for a less familiar procedure. In this case, using a bougie to act as a passage for the tube is a great way. If you go to YouTube and search for bougie-assisted cricothyrotomy, you'll find about 10 good examples of how to perform this procedure. So again, just to try if you can, if you can see what you're doing or feel what you're doing to, to make your transverse incision in the lower part of the cricothyroid membrane, a centimeter incision should suffice. You can use, if you have a number four cuffed shyly or a cuffed uh, tracheal tube, you can use that. If you don't, you can use a number six, just regular endotracheal tube. You can cut it shorter if you want. You can do that afterwards too. Just be, be cautious because it's very easy to insert it too deep if you're using a regular endotracheal tube because you're probably a little bit anxious because it's a stressful situation. And the temptation is always just to put it into the hilt kind of thing and you're definitely going to end up in the right main stem in that case. So it only really needs to be in a few centimeters, inflate the cuff, confirm with entitled CO2, and don't forget to remove the obturator so that you can ventilate the patient. So uh, really... I, I, I know this sounds crazy, but I really believe the hardest part of the procedure is just making the decision that you're going to do it. In terms of once you've got the tube in, how do you confirm placement? How is it? Right. Is it similar to when we confirm right. so placement? Say, same as any arm? endotracheal tube. So end-tidal uh, CO2 for sure. Auscultation to the lung fields. You could put in an, an NG tube through and get an X-ray. Uh, really, for me, the easiest thing to do is just do bronchoscopy. So that's what I would do. I would just take a nasopharyngoscope or a bronchoscope and look at the carina. And if I see the carina, then I'm happy. And that's easy to do. So that was a lot to take in at once. Let's go over the traditional cricothyrotomy technique. And when I'm reviewing it this time, try and visualize it in your head. First, there's landmarking. Feel the cricothyroid membrane between the thyroid cartilage, that's the Adam's apple, and the cricoid cartilage. Use palpation rather than just visualization because often you can't visualize it. In obese patients where it's difficult to palpate the thyroid or cricoid cartilage, you can use four finger breaths above the sternal notch to estimate the location of the cricothyroid membrane. Remember, always stabilize the larynx with your non-dominant hand throughout the procedure. Use an 18-gauge needle on a syringe to pull back until you get air and leave the needle in. Then make a vertical skin incision about 2 centimeters with a number 11 blade from the top of the cricoid to the thyroid cartilage. Remember that the vertical incision minimizes the risk of venous injury. It avoids all the lateral vessels and allows you to easily extend in either direction if you're having trouble exposing the cricothyroid membrane, which is only about half a centimeter to a centimeter high. After you've made your vertical incision, then you make your one centimeter horizontal incision of the cricothyroid membrane itself. You put your finger inside the trachea, insert the tracheal hook 
which usually is easiest if it's held by an assistant, and give upward traction towards the patient's head and expand the hole vertically with the dilator. Remember that the transverse incision should be in the lower half of the cricothyroid membrane to avoid the cricothyroid arteries and the vocal cords. After that, you place your number four cuffed trach tube or your number six cuffed endotracheal tube going in horizontally along the blades of the dilator, and then you rotate 90 degrees with the dilator together so that the end of the tube is facing the patient's feet. Replace the obturator with the inner tube, attach to the oxygen, and inflate the cuff. If you're handy with a bougie, or you're just having trouble getting the tube in, you can use a bougie or a semi-rigid ET tube stylet prior to tube placement. One pitfall is the tendency to shove the tube too far in. Remember that you only need to advance the tube 5 centimeters in the average adult, because any more than that and you'll run the risk of mainstem bronchus intubation. Another thing to remember is that if you do cut a number 6 ET tube, be sure to cut it proximal to the inflation device, otherwise you'll render the tube uninflatable. Dr. Blicker is now going to comment on how to recognize tube misplacement in cricothyrotomies. The one thing to be aware of is if you're in the pretracheal space with the tube, that you can start ventilating the patient and cause a pneumomediastinum. It'll be dramatically obvious usually. You'll feel it as subcutaneous emphysema in the neck, and you'll feel resistance to bag valve mask ventilation. So just be cautious of that. So that's the traditional technique. What about the four-step technique? The Brofeld four-step technique is apparently supposed to be faster, so has that advantage over the traditional technique. Yeah, I think, you know, it's a, a way of trying to keep things simple, which is always good when you're under the gun and doing a procedure that you're not doing all the time. And basically, it's very similar. Maybe there's some more more bleeding than the traditional open technique. It's one incision, not two, so it's just palpating the cricothyroid membrane, making a horizontal stab incision in number 20 blade, going through the skin and the cricothyroid membrane at the same time, and then leaving the blade in the hole, using a tracheal hook or a skin hook or a bear claw on the caudal side of the blade, and then giving caudal traction to the cricoid ring. So that's actually opposite to the technique I described before, which was yeah, using the more cephalad portion, uh, and then just putting the tube through that opening or putting a bougie through the opening and putting a tube over it. So it's a way of just condensing all that into four steps. The only uh, caveat there is that I think that probably doing a single transverse incision is probably easier to get carried away and get into the IJ or carotid. Okay, so we've talked about the traditional technique. We've talked about the four-step technique. Mm -hmm. There's also the Seldinger technique that you can use, like when we put in central lines. Depending on your speed with your Seldinger technique, you might prefer to use that over the traditional technique if, like we were saying, go with what you're used to. Can you review for us how the Seldinger technique is done and whether you would recommend it? Sure. There's a number of kits available. The one that's most commonly seen is the Melker kit, there's another one called the Blue Rhino Kit. You insert the needle, 45-degree angle, caudally, obviously directed towards the patient's feet, aspirating as you're doing it. If you want to use a syringe that's filled with some saline so that you can see the air more easily, you can, although it's not necessary. When you get into the trachea, you'll get free-flowing air. It should flow readily. There should be no resistance. Then you're going to stabilize your needle and 
disconnect your syringe, you'll feed the wire from the kit through the needle or the catheter. Some of the kits have a catheter. And then you'll remove your needle or your catheter over the guide wire, leaving the guide wire in the trachea. Then you'll make an incision down along the wire. They talk about doing a vertical incision. So you're going to make your vertical incision down along the wire. You're going to follow that with the, the dilator. Now, some of the kits have the dilator integral with the airway, and some of the kits have the dilator separate. So depending on what the kit is, you'll either insert the dilator and the airway as a unit over the wire, remembering to follow the curve of the airway, uh, and it will follow so that the curve is going towards the patient's feet down, and try not to kink the wire, same as we were talking about before with the central lines, is if you don't follow the uh, direction that the wire is going, you don't respect that direction, then you're more likely to get a kink in the wire and have difficulty. So just follow that curvature, insert the thing as a unit, and then when you're comfortable that you're in, then you can remove the dilator and the wire as a unit and then inflate the cuff, check your, your placement in standard fashion that we talked about, secure your tube, etc. When it comes to bougie-assisted cricothyrotomy, there was an article out of Academic Emergency Medicine in 2010 by Hill which showed that for novice operators, the bougie-assisted technique was faster and easier than the standard surgical technique with a similar failure rate. So if you are a novice to cricothyrotomy, you may want to consider using a bougie. Yeah, I like to think of it as, you know, when you have a difficult airway from above and you can't see what's going on, you're going blind with a bougie, that's when you might pull out the bougie to, to help you For out. Sure, yeah. And with a crike, you're basically going, as you mentioned before, you're going blind, where it's more that you're palpating more than visualizing. And so I think of it as the similar kind of situation where a bougie would yeah. help. And the nice thing about having the bougie as well is, is it's very easy to lose your tract or lose your airway. But if the bougie is in the airway, then at least you know you have something in the airway, you know where you want to go. Okay, so that's the three main surgical techniques, the traditional technique, the four-step technique, and the Seldinger technique, and all of these can be plus or minus bougie. What about the non-surgical cricothyroidotomy techniques like transtracheal jet ventilation? Can you just review for us how that's done and what potential advantages or disadvantages it has compared with the other surgical techniques? Just remember, it's a temporizing measure. It's not a definitive airway. You cannot achieve adequate ventilation with the setups available to us. Although, as I think you'll, you'll talk about later, there is something that's kind of on the horizon that does allow ventilation through a 2-millimeter catheter. For the most part, what's available to us is a 12-gauge or 14-gauge angiocath connected to a 3cc or a 5cc syringe and connected to an adapter from a, seven, uh, a number 7 endotracheal tube will f- allow you to fit onto a bag valve mask for ventilation or to a wall unit with uh, a, y, uh, a Y connector for uh, administering high-flow oxygen. So it's a temporizing measure that will allow you not to ventilate the patient, but will allow you to oxygenate the patient. And that's really important to remember in the case of somebody with an upper airway obstruction, they're not going to be able to have passive exhalation of gas, and so you have to be aware of that. And somebody with not without an obstructed airway to do transtracheal jet ventilation, they'll at least they may not be able to get adequate ventilation, but they'll still be allowed to have egress of air from or oxygen from the, the upper airway. Whereas in somebody with obstruction, they really won't. So you have to be careful about causing barotrauma in uh, that setting. 
if you're going to have jet ventilation in your armamentarium, you really should have it set up in a kit, ready to roll. And the reason for that is it's actually not trivial to find the pieces that you need in each emergency department. Just for example, you need a 14-gauge angiocath, and it needs to be non-safety 14-gauge angiocath, right? So now everything is safety needles. I actually always have a 14-gauge angiocath with me, but if you don't have that, you have to go find the angiocath, and you've got to find the syringe, and you've got to find the endotracheal adapter, and so that's crazy. And so that's not the time when you want to be looking for that stuff, because if you need to jet ventilate somebody, it's probably because things are not going well. So keep that in mind. So what I would suggest is actually a Ziploc bag with the tubing, the angiocath, the adapter, and then some places will have an actual handle jet ventilator where it'll deliver the pulse of oxygen, or really that's not necessary. You can use just a oxygen tubing with a Y on it that you just cover with your thumb and oxygenate with that. One of the advantages is that you can, you can try multiple times to insert the angiocath in the airway within a few seconds. Whereas, you know, if you're doing an open airway, you do it once and then it's a bloodbath and then you're either done, you're either successful or you're not successful. So it could be faster and less bleeding complications, but it's temporary. It doesn't protect the airway and uh, can't suction through it. In addition to the three disadvantages of transtracheal jet ventilation that Dr. Blicker just mentioned, in kids, it's very common to puncture the posterior wall of the trachea with the needle when you're trying to do transtracheal jet ventilation. And so this is one of the other problems that make it a difficult technique and also result in quite a high failure rate compared to the open surgical technique. So it's still a bit controversial as to the best go-to technique for children in a can't-intubate-can't-ventilate situation. Well, how about in adults? What about that obese patient where it would be very difficult to do an open surgical technique and you just want to try a needle first? Well, the literature there also suggests that the success rate is not as good as the open surgical technique. A lot of this episode, we're, we've come back to talking about ultrasound and how it can help us out. Do you think there's any role for ultrasound in helping with crike? I mean, like we were saying before, it's very <laughs> difficult like, to visualize. Yeah. We're kind of going almost blind. We're yeah. just palpating. Do you think that ED ultrasound can help us out in these situations? Uh, I'll tell you, it's funny you should ask that because I'm a big fan of ultrasound, as you know, and I don't think it's helpful for this. This is a technique that needs to be kept simple. And it needs the minimum of tools. There's certainly there's lots of evidence to show that checking tube placement ultrasound is very helpful. But as far as helping you get the tube in, I don't think the, that it's helpful. I think, you know, in a crash airway, I completely agree with you. I think um, when you're trying to do a procedure on a patient who's desatting and you, you just have to get yeah. get the tube in. I do think it may have a role if you have a predicted difficult airway. And as part of your preparation for a difficult airway is you're going to landmark for where you would do for a strike sure. if needed. So putting an X on the spot where you later cut, I think, might reassure you and give you the confidence to do an RSI on a patient that you might not otherwise. Or at least mm-hmm. if it came to that, you, you wouldn't have to worry about where to landmark ahead of time. You have the confidence to know where that's where you need to make your cut. So, But I, I completely agree with you. In a craft situation, I'm reaching for my scalpel and I'm, I'm not reaching for the ultrasound there. So at this point in the episode, I just want to throw in a nice little procedural tip that uh, Dr. Chenkin has for us. 
the standard technique for eye irrigation in the ED is to run normal saline through a Morgan lens. What's the trick that you use for eye irrigation that uh, might be better than using a Morgan lens? So I've come across a, a neat trick for eye irrigation. I generally don't like using Morgan lenses. I, in my experience, uh, I found patients tend not to tolerate them very well, even with topical anesthetic. Uh, so somebody at some point showed me a, a neat trick using nasal cannula, nasal oxygen cannula. And what you do is you can place the nasal cannula over the bridge of the nose so that each one of the ports is pointing down towards one eye. And you can hook that up to a standard IV uh, tubing and hook that up to a liter of saline bag. And you can anesthetize the eyes if you like, but some patients will tolerate this without even any anesthetic. And you just basically open the IV bag and let the, the saline dribble in. And you ask the patient just to blink the fluid into their eyes. And this tends to work really well for eye irrigation. And patients, in my experience, have found it uh, much more tolerable than having the, uh, the Morgan lens placed on their eyes. So I find it works quite well, and I use it all the time. Great. There's I'm going to try that. Yeah, me too. <laughs> All right, let's move on to case number four. Case number four is a 56-year-old woman, known HIV positive. She comes into your resuscitation room, short of breath, agitated, confused, and diaphoretic. She's found to have a narrow pulse pressure with a heart rate of 145 and an elevated GVP with a clear chest to auscultation. Her ECG shows sinus tachy with flip T's in the anterior leads. While waiting for a chest X-ray, she develops progressive hypotension, then bradycardia, and suffers from a PEA arrest. During the resuscitation, an ED ultrasound shows a massive pericardial effusion. Despite immediate needle decompression, the patient was unable to be resuscitated and died. Dr. Chenkin, what are some of the more common causes of pericardial effusion with tamponade that would help us think about this diagnosis in patients who present with shortness of breath and or hypotension? So it's important to remember that any patient with shortness of breath and hypotension could harbor a potential pericardial effusion. So uh, with the availability of bedside ultrasound, I, I have a really low threshold to, to just put the probe on and have a look. Uh, that being said, there are some patient situations that you want to think about this uh, and place this higher on your list. I tend to divide up pericardial effusions into uh, hemopericardium and non-hemorrhagic effusions. In terms of hemopericardium, these are generally more acute presentations, and by far the most common cause of these is post-cardiac surgery. They usually anticipate this and leave pericardial drains in, but you may sometimes see patients coming back post-cardiac surgery who have a hemopericardium. Other causes of hemopericardium would be uh, patients who are on anticoagulants, uh, cardiac catastrophes such as LV wall rupture, uh, traumatic causes, and iatrogenic, such as placing uh, central lines or permanent pacemakers, can cause ventricular rupture as well. And then, of course, don't forget aortic dissection, which can dissect back into the pericardium and cause a hemopericardium. In terms of non-hemorrhagic causes, by far the most common is neoplastic. So any patient with a history of malignancy, you definitely want to think about this diagnosis. Other causes include things like pericarditis, connective tissue disorders, such as lupus, multiple drugs, cardiac disease, HIV, radiation, and renal failure. All these uh, can potentially cause pericardial effusions, and you should have a low threshold to have a look and see if there's one there. 20% of patients with unexplained dyspnea will have an effusion on echo. It's not uncommon that patients get sent over to CT for a rule-out PE study, and then mm -hmm. they come back with a radiologist calling you saying there's a pericardial yeah. effusion. Mm -hmm. um, you know, you could have saved yourself a lot of time and radiation and contrast by just having a look first. So I, I routinely do that anytime I'm thinking about PE. I'll actually uh, have a look at the heart first just to make sure we don't miss that diagnosis. That's a great pearl. 
So let's talk about specifically about pericardiocentesis. There are three anatomical approaches. The classic sub-xiphoid approach uh, between the xiphoid and left costal margin. The parasternal approach, which is in the fifth intercostal space, just lateral to the sternum. And the apical approach, which is at the apex of the heart. Dr. Blicker, which approach do you recommend and why? Well, I recommend the apical approach, although I'm most, more familiar with the sub-xiphoid approach. As you know, in cardiac arrest situations, we would do a sub-xiphoid uh, aspiration as kind of a last ditch to see what happens. So we, we used to do that all the time. Now we really only do a pericardiocentesis when we see that there's pericardial fluid, which seems more rational to me. So now I think the sub-xiphoid approach is kind of passe because it shouldn't be a blind technique anymore. Now, with ultrasound guidance, I think it's most easily done with the apical approach, where you get a four-chamber apical view, and under real-time ultrasound guidance, you can do the pericardiocentesis that way. Okay, and the reason why the apical approach is easier is simply because the heart is actually closer. Yeah, it's right. if you're in the left lateral decubitus, and you look with ultrasound, you'll see the heart is really right up against the chest wall. The lungs are pushed out of the way. There's less pericardial vessels in that region. You're less likely to cause a pericardial vascular injury. You're not going to hit the liver because you're, you're, you're remote from that, of course. Dr. Chenkin, what are the ED ultrasound diagnostic criteria for pericardial tamponade? Well, it's important to remember that pericardial tamponade really is a clinical diagnosis. Ultrasound provides additional information, but it's really only an image. And you have to combine that information with the rest of the clinical picture to make the diagnosis of tamponade. So if you have a patient with a pericardial effusion and they're hypotensive and short, short of breath and have jugular venous distension, really there aren't any additional ultrasound criteria that you need to make the diagnosis. You've got your diagnosis. That being said, ultrasound can provide you with some extremely valuable information that can increase your suspicion of tamponade or to help rule it out. First, and probably most helpful, is that if you look at the heart and you see no pericardial effusion, really you've ruled out pericardial tamponade. So this can help to narrow your, your differential diagnosis very quickly. If there is a pericardial effusion, you can first look at the size of it. If it's really just a sliver of fluid, less than 5 millimeters, and it's only seen posteriorly, this is really unlikely to have any clinical significance. If it's large and circumferential, it's more likely to be significant. That being said, a small effusion, if it develops rapidly, can still cause tamponade. So next, you're going to look at the chambers. If you see a late diastolic collapse of the right atrium, this is actually 94% sensitive and 100% specific for tamponade. Um, this is actually best appreciated in the apical four-chamber view, if you can obtain that view. You can also look for right ventricular free wall diastolic collapse, although this is less sensitive and specific, as you may not see that if there's chronic right ventricular hypertrophy. This is best seen actually in the parasternal view or the subxiphoid view. An additional finding you might find is the interventricular septum may be seen to bow back and forth between the RV and the LV during dif different phases of respiration. This is something called interventricular dependence. and is actually quite specific for cardiac tamponade. If you're good with ultrasound, you can actually look at the IBC and the JVP with it as well. And so normally the IBC has some collapse with inspiration. And if the patient takes a forceful sniff, it should collapse by more than 50%. If you have right-sided heart pressures, such as cardiac tamponade, the IBC will lose its respiratory variation and will not collapse with the sniff test. Also, the JVP is actually very easy to appreciate with ultrasound, and again, it's normally elevated with cardiac tamponade. So, Dr. Chenkin, can you just run through for us then the basic technique for performing a pericardiocentesis in the apical view? 
Sure. So first thing you want to do is make sure you have all your resuscitation equipment ready, including a defibrillator. That's not uncommon for patients to uh, go into cardiac arrest or develop some arrhythmias. So just make sure you have that all prepared ahead of time. And as I said previously, all, all pericardiosynthesis should be done using ultrasound guidance unless it's not immediately available and the patient is likely to deteriorate significantly while you're waiting to get that. Um, you want to check all the views to find the, the best pocket of fluid that's closest to the probe. And as we mentioned, that's usually the apical approach. You want to make sure you're away from the mammary, internal mammary artery, as we mentioned. So make sure you're at least three to five centimeters away from the parasternal border. If you can position your patient in the semi-erect position or the left lateral decubitus position, this will bring the heart closer to the wall. You want to measure the distance on ultrasound to the pocket of fluid so you know how far ahead of time you need to advance your needle. And of course, you're going to prep, drape, and anesthetize the area as you normally would. If you have a pericardiosynthesis kit in your emergency department, you can use that. If not, you can use an 18-gauge long spinal needle that has an obturator. You're under ultrasound, real-time ultrasound guidance. You're going to advance your needle uh, over the rib to avoid the neurovascular bundle. And you're going to be aiming the needle towards the right shoulder. If you're doing this blindly, you're going to insert about one centimeter lateral to the apical impulse. Once you're just through the skin, you're going to remove the internal obturator, attach the syringe to the needle, and basically slowly advance your needle under ultrasound guidance until you get fluid back. Once you have fluid back in your syringe, you want to confirm that you're actually in the uh, pericardial space, especially if the fluid is bloody. You want to make sure your needle hasn't accidentally entered one of the cardiac chambers. Um, the way to confirm your needle location using pericardiosynthesis and using ultrasound is by using agitated saline. And so what you do is uh, have your assistant prepare some agitated saline for you and inject it through your pericardiosynthesis needle. And what you want to see is the contrast on your ultrasound screen should show up in the pericardial space and not in one of the ventricles. And this is how you can confirm that your, your pericardiosynthesis needle is in the pericardial space and not in the heart. Once you've confirmed that, you can feed your guide wire and then using a Seldinger technique, advance your catheter. If it's a crash situation, really all you're going to be doing at that, at that time is um, aspirating fluid back and hoping even with you know, 30 to 40 cc's of fluid back out of the pericardium can often regain a return of spontaneous circulation. Once you have that, then you can take the time to put a proper catheter in. Um, some kits have a pigtail catheter as well that you can use. Um, if your kit has that, that's uh, nice. But really in a crash situation, all you need to do is, is aspirate some fluid back and relieve the pressure on the heart. So generally speaking, how much fluid do you need to pull back on to help to see some change in the hemodynamics of the patient? It's not a lot of fluid. Um, they may have liters of fluid in there, but often um, uh, because of the pressure volume curves, just removing 30 to 40 cc's sometimes will have a dramatic effect on the hemodynamics and can allow them to regain their pulse. So I would, I would definitely start by aspirating 30 to 40 cc's, uh, rechecking the patient's status. And once, once you get their pulse back or once their hemodynamics have improved, then you can set up a more permanent solution with a, a proper catheter. Any other tips and tricks about pericardiosynthesis? So one of the things to remember in patients who have signs or symptoms of pericardial tamponade is that they're very preload dependent. Uh, so some things you can do to temporize uh, would be to try to give a fluid bolus and to uh, try to avoid any positive pressure ventilation in these patients as this will increase their intrathoracic pressure and decrease their preload and can precipitate a cardiovascular collapse. Uh, so if there's a, a way to avoid uh, intubation or positive pressure ventilation until after you've done your procedure, that might benefit the patient.
Well, that about wraps it up for this month's episode. Before we go, I'd like to leave you with this month's quote of the month. And this one's from Amelia Earhart. The most difficult thing is the decision to act. The rest is merely tenacity. The fears are paper tigers. You can do anything you decide to do. And the procedure, the process, is its own reward. In the next episode, we're going to have Dr. Chenkin and Dr. Blicker back to talk about more procedures like lumbar puncture, how to deal with spontaneous pneumothoraces, and ultrasound-guided fracture reduction. So until next time, take it easy.